Good morning. I'm Brad Julin. The Lord be with you. Thanks, Adam, for reading Nehemiah 5 for us. Today, uh, our topic is fearing God. Nehemiah chapter 5 changes the focus of the book. Up until now, the main focus has been uh, overcoming the external opposition from the people surrounding them. They have faced ridicule, intimidation, and discouragement. But suddenly, at just the point that they seem to be breaking through this opposition, a major problem arises from within. A conflict arises around economic issues among God's people. And I think it reveals the degree to which greed and selfishness can grip our lives, destroy people, and sabotage God's kingdom and program. Well, this passage contrasts the actions of the Jewish nobles um, with that of Nehemiah and his leadership team. The story begins with complaints from three different groups of people. Nehemiah makes it clear that the economic conditions were difficult to begin with and that the famine conditions were making things worse. These people were in desperate straits. The first group are simply uh, people in poverty. They could not get enough food to feed their large families. The second group were in debt. They had to mortgage their fields and vineyards and homes uh, at exorbitant rates in order to buy grain. And the third group were enslaved. They had to sell their children as debt slaves in order to pay the king's taxes um, on their land, even though they'd lost control of the land and the fields and vineyards to others. Now, these people were not lazy, they weren't dishonest, and they weren't stupid. The economic conditions had forced them to make horrendous choices which are almost beyond our ability to comprehend. But you know what? These same choices are being forced on people today. Current estimates are that 1.2 million children are sold into slavery every year. And at least one quarter of them are forced to work as laborers in farms and mines and industrial factories. The current cost of a child slave in African countries such as Ghana is $37 U.S., which is, I am told, about the same cost as a cow. Most parents of these children love them every bit as much as any one of us do. But they are forced to sell a child to feed the rest of their children or for some other horrendous reason. And that's exactly what was happening in Judah at this time. These people were not just whining that they were powerless. They were stating the facts of the case. But perhaps the real tragedy here was not the hard situation. It was the even harder people. The nobles and officials who had resources were willing to give people help, but at exorbitant interest rates. They were gouging people. The hundredth part of the money, grain, new wine, and oil mentioned in verse 11 uh, was almost certainly a monthly charge. 
the interest rate was in excess of 12%. And when people couldn't pay it back, they foreclosed on their lands and homes. Warren Wiersbe writes, It was not unlawful for Jews to loan money to one another, but they were not to act like the moneylenders and charge interest. They were to treat one another with love, even in the matter of taking security for a loan or in making a brother a servant. But the people and the land, both the people and the land, belonged to the Lord, and he would not have anybody using them for their personal gain. So these people's abuse of the poor, it was also proof that they did not believe God's promises to bless them. Um, if they were generous to the poor. In Deuteronomy 15, God speaks about the Sabbath year and his promise to bless them. And here's what it says in Deuteronomy 15. At the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. And this is how it is to be done. Every creditor shall cancel the loan he has made to his fellow Israelite. However, there should be no poor among you, for in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance, he will richly bless you if only you obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow all his commands. For the Lord your God will bless you as he has promised, and you will lend to many nations, but will borrow from none. You will rule over many nations, but none will rule over you. And if there is a poor man among your brothers in any of the towns of the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward your poor brother. Rather, be open-handed. Freely lend him whatever he needs. Give generously to him and do so without a grudging heart. Then, then because of this, the Lord your God will bless you. He will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to. There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you, be open-hearted toward your brothers and toward the poor and the needy in the land. And if a fellow Hebrew, a man or a woman, sells himself to you and serves six years in the seventh year, you must let him go free. And, and when do you release him? Do not send him away empty-handed. Supply him liber liberally from your flock, your threshing floor, and your wine press. Give to him as the Lord God has blessed you. Remember, <laughs> you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. And that is why I give you this command today. Wow. <laughs> Friends, the wealthy were ignoring God's word and taking advantage of the vulnerability of the poor in order to gain control of more land and more resources. But in today's world, we would probably call them shrewd businessmen. We'd probably put their picture on the front of Forbes magazine and admire how they made their fortunes. We would buy their books, attend their seminars on how to get ahead of the other guy. We would create a TV show where young wannabe apprentices would buy with each other over how shrewd and ruthless they can be in order to get a job with the famous businessman or else they'd be fired from the show. <laughs> After all, these guys are just trying to make a living. They're just out to make a buck. 
They're just doing what everybody else is doing. So if people lose their jobs due to the corporate takeover, well, that's just the price of doing business. It's a dog-eat-dog world out there. And the justifications for self-centeredness and greed go on ad nauseum. Here they are in the midst of a great work of faith by reestablishing Israel as a nation, only to discover that just as great an enemy is working within. And the first thing Nehemiah says is, I was very angry. You know, Anger is not necessarily a bad thing, friends. It can motivate us to act. And all of us should be angry about injustice at times. But you know, when I'm angry, I do not think as well as when I'm cool. And frequently my anger has more to do with me and my pride and my agenda, my preferences, my expectations, than it does with things that are actually unjust or wrong. So I like what Nehemiah says he did next. He says, I pondered them in my mind. He took a step back. He took time to reflect on what was happening and why he felt so angry about it. Was he mad because it was hindering God's work? Or was that just religious camouflage over his personal anger that his plan to be regarded as the hero of Jerusalem might get sabotaged? Whenever I am angry about stuff, and I do get angry about stuff, that is always the time to stop and ponder things and examine my motives before I speak. So having tested his motives and pondered the issues, Nehemiah calls a general assembly and rebukes these smart businessmen. He points out how their selfishness was a complete rejection of God's purposes. God had redeemed them out of slavery in Egypt. He had bought them out of slavery in Egypt to set them free and bring them into the land. And now he has just redeemed them out of Babylon to bring them back into the land and set them free. And many of those who were free were also trying to redeem those who had been sold into slavery to foreigners. But these nobles and leaders, officials, were forcing their own people to be sold back into slavery again. Nehemiah says, we did everything we could to buy back our Jewish brothers who had to sell themselves as slaves to foreigners. And now you're selling these same brothers back into debt slavery. Does that mean we have to buy them back again? They said nothing. What could they say? Nehemiah goes on to rebuke them for their witness to the unbelieving Gentiles. Instead of demonstrating a life of love and holiness and generosity because they had been redeemed by God from slavery themselves, they were demonstrating that they were no different from anybody else. Instead of gratitude, a holy fear and respect for God who had redeemed them, they were living for the moment and grabbing as big a piece of the action as they could get. 
and their actions made the neighboring peoples mock the reality of God in their midst. Nehemiah demands they give back what they have unfairly taken and stop charging credit card rates for their loans. And the loan sharks promptly agree. Now that short statement of repentance should make us pause. What does it take to get people to change? Proverbs tells us that wise people listen to correction, but only consequences will change a fool. Some people learn by instruction. Some people only learn through consequences. So reading this at first glance, these seem to be reasonable people who respond to Nehemiah's correction. But I think if we look closer, we see something different. The public nature of this large meeting and the direct rebuke from a leader who had already earned significant trust must have been embarrassing to these nobles and officials who were not so nobly taking advantage of people. That embarrassment, it was a definite consequence. And perhaps we should ask ourselves this question. Was Nehemiah's accusation new information for these people? Was this the first time someone suggested the inconsistency of claiming to be set free by God and using that freedom to enslave their brothers and sisters? Were they listening to Nehemiah and saying to themselves, Oh, you know, I never thought of it that way. (laughs) I doubt it. You know, friends, we need to ask ourselves whether we are the kind of person who listens to instruction from wise people or, as Proverbs said, a fool who only learns through consequences. They had been caught red-handed. Up to that point, they had just been doing what everybody else was doing. They were going along with the crowd, justifying themselves by comparing themselves with themselves, with others who were doing the same thing. Apparently, a little leaven works its way through the whole lump of dough. I think somebody said that somewhere. It was the dirty little secret of life in Judah that no one talked about until Nehemiah opened his mouth and blabbed it all over the place. There is a legitimate place for privacy but it can so easily morph into secrecy that sustains a double life. It allows you to expect people to treat you as a noble while you act ignobly. Is that a word? You start out trying to fool others, and you end up fooling yourself. You see, our ability to ignore the obvious and justify almost any behavior is nearly unlimited. James tells us that those who listen to the Word but do not do what it says deceive themselves. Whenever we act contrary to what we believe is right, we have to lie to ourselves in order to live with what we are doing. We justify it. And the Word is one of the God-given guards against our boundless ability to fool ourselves, friends. James says it's like a mirror that we look into 
and we see ourselves the way we really are. Not the distorted picture we've tried to create for ourselves and for others. Oh yeah, I'm a noble. Mm -hmm. But when you look at your actions, <laughs> you realize you ain't living it out. Now friends, if we will allow it, there's another mirror that helps us see ourselves the way we really are. And that is the people who are closest to us. They can be a mirror too. This is one of the great values of being part of a healthy life group. In small groups of caring people, we can hopefully find the safety and acceptance to live a more transparent life with one another. It becomes a place we can acknowledge our struggles, our failures, our sins. Because others are being transparent about those things in their lives too. It is also ideally a place where someone who knows me and cares about me can be a mirror in my life, reflecting my behavior back to me. I sometimes need someone who cares about me to notice when I'm short with others or when I'm thoughtless or selfish or self-deceived by my justifications for doing what I'm doing. We don't have to agree with everything a person says to us when they confront us with our behavior. We don't have to agree with everything. But you know what? Emotionally healthy and mature people foster a willingness to consider the kernel of truth in what is being said. And I've also noticed a pattern in my life. I am much more willing to listen to someone who dares to speak to me because they are for me and want me to be better. You know what? Claiming Christ as our Savior does not automatically produce a life that is different than this dog-eat-dog -dog world we talk about. Trying to serve God and mammon may be impossible, but it doesn't mean most of us are not lured by the siren song of money and things. Being joyfully generous is the mark of truly free people. Regular giving to the poor and to the church, this church, is therapy. It is a vaccine for the pandemic of feverishly greedy desires that all of us get infected with. It is an antidote to the ads and shows that tell us we will be happy when we finally get all those things. Humble, joy-filled giving is practiced, is practiced in the long-lost art of self-denial. It is soul-saving and life-giving. It is an exercise in worshiping God and not our own desires. And God himself will be blessed by such fruit in our lives. And someday, it will be seen to be a wise investment in the eternal. The decision to give back what they had taken and treat others as brothers and sisters is sealed with an oath and a curse. There's something we could talk about for a while. <laughs> uh, 
an oath and a curse upon anyone who did not keep his promise in the matter. After this, the whole assembly gave praise to God and did what they promised to do. Friends, that's key. It was a great victory, and it demonstrated genuine repentance. And please remember this. Repentance is never measured by words or tears, but by actions. Can I just say this? Anybody can fool me. (laughs) Anybody can fool me. With the apparent sincerity of their words and tears. I've seen it a number of times. I want to believe them. But you know what? I don't have to figure out whether they're being truthful or not. I simply watch to see if their actions demonstrate real repentance. In the second half of this chapter, Nehemiah describes his own actions and the use of his power as governor of Judah appointed by King Artaxerxes. His first term as governor lasted 12 years. And during that time, he did three things that demonstrated integrity and unselfishness and a fear of God. First, he says that he did not demand taxes or abuse his power. Because of the economic hardship, he did not exercise his right as governor to demand, to demand food supplies and taxes from the people. He describes his actions in contrast to that of previous Persian governors. Governors who preceded me had oppressed the people by taxing them 40 shekels of silver a day for food and wine, while their their underlings bullied the people unmercifully. But out of fear of God, I did none of that. And his reason for acting differently was simply this, fear or respect of God. Oswald Chambers um, is... uh, is remembered for saying the following. The remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. That might be something you have to reflect on just a bit. Nehemiah wasn't afraid of what people thought of him or the impact to his net worth, or how it might affect his retirement, because he cared what God would say about his actions. In direct contrast to these businessmen who didn't care what God thought of their actions, Nehemiah let every choice be governed by what God thought of it. He was not self-centered. He was God-centered. Not only did he and his men not tax the people, they also devoted themselves to the work on the wall. Nehemiah wasn't too good to get his hands dirty. (laughs) He was a servant leader who humbled himself and, and sought to lead by example. I think Wes Dahl is someone who has modeled that in this church. I frequently hear comments about his willingness to tackle with his own hands whatever needed to be done. Blessings on you, Wes. Now please understand what was going on here. Nehemiah wasn't being a politician. Politicians love photo ops. You know, they they love to be seen flipping burgers with the common people or standing at a a ceremony with a shovel in hand. (laughs) at a sod turning. Every politician knows the value of appearing to be one of the people 
Unfortunately, that sometimes combined with schemes to line their own pockets. But Nehemiah wasn't putting on a show of hard work, nor was he scheming to pad his Swiss bank account. He devoted himself to the work. He strapped on a sword and prepared to fight, if necessary, for his people. Thirdly, he gave of his own resources. He goes on to describe how he provided food for the officials and others who ate with him. He was concerned about the heavy demands on God's people, and he had compassion on them. In spite of his own position of privilege, Nehemiah genuinely cared about the hardship of the people he was leading, and so he gave of his own resources as he carried out his hosting duties as governor. That is evidence of integrity, friends. The Apostle Paul was forced to give defense to those who criticized his ministry at Corinth. He said to them, This is my defense to those who sit in judgment on me. Don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have a right to take a believing wife along with us, as do the apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas? That's Peter. Or is it only I and Barnabas who must work for a living? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel. That's that fear of God thing again, friends. And the fear of God consistently leads to a life of integrity. Now, Paul frequently supported himself by making tents because he was a man of integrity and did not want anything to hinder the gospel. But Scripture is also clear that a church has responsibility to provide for its staff. And since we will soon begin the search for a new lead pastor here at South Langley Church, perhaps we should reflect on what Nehemiah's actions say about the kind of person we are looking for. The obvious thing we are drawn to is to look at ministry skills. We're looking for an effective communicator, someone who is relationally warm, uh, demonstrated administrative and leadership abilities are frequently the kinds of things that are listed. But you know what? <laughs> Character things like integrity and spiritual maturity and especially emotional maturity... They are much harder to see or measure. You can't see them so much as you can see the fruit that they produce. The fruit of integrity, the fear of God, and emotional maturity in a person's life over time is what we are looking for. You can't see that on a candidating weekend. You you examine it, you test it by talking to people who have known them for a long time and seen the fruit of their life over an extended period of time. Now, I'm about to get myself into trouble here. I think this same principle applies to calling any people into leadership in the church. The Bible uses three terms interchangeably for those who govern or oversee and nurture or shepherd God's people. Those are the two primary functions, governing or overseeing and shepherding or nurturing God's people. 
So those, those three terms are pastor or shepherd, same word, overseer, it's the same word we get bishop from, and elder. Elder is just a term of respect, for, of maturity. <laughs> Regardless of what you call them, though, the people who are responsible to govern the church well and for the spiritual care of the congregation are functioning as elders. In this church, we call them council members. We tend to shy away from calling them elders because in some churches, eldership is associated with a very top-down governance model. But don't mistake the title for the function. Those who are responsible for governance and spiritual care are functioning as elders and, and should be tested in accordance with the qualities of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, which I'm not going to read for you now. But that raises another problem for us. Because the descriptions of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 are often called qualifications for elders. And when we read it in that way, nobody qualifies. They appear to be black and white, either-or descriptions. After all, who of us would claim to be blameless? Titus 1.6. And just how hospitable do you have to be to qualify as hospitable? But friends, in the same way that we look for the fruit of integrity and the fear of God and emotional maturity in a pastoral candidate, the descriptions in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 are describing the fruit of a stable, growing relationship with God. We are not looking for perfection, but evidence of genuine spirituality and maturity as established and growing qualities in that person's life. Now, there are no perfect people at South Langley Church. I guess they all left just before Ron and I got here. But there are people who demonstrate genuine spiritual maturity, emotional maturity, and integrity. They do it by the way they, they treat their family, by their their reputation with those outside the church, by their hospitality, by their gentleness, by their aptness to teach, by their godly living, just as Timothy and Titus describe. And so the same questions we ask about the fruit of spiritual and emotional maturity in the life of a pastoral candidate, we should be asking of all those who we call into leadership here. In my opinion, and you can disagree with me, the best way to protect a church from ambitious, immature, or self-centered leadership is not to require every decision be approved by a congregational vote, but to examine those we call into leadership to make sure that they are consistently demonstrating the fruit of a humble, growing relationship with God. And if we call those people into leadership, brothers and sisters, there is a reasonable amount of trust that needs to be given to those we ask to lead. 
I think I'll stop there. Now, some people might think that Nehemiah in this last half of the chapter is kind of blowing his own horn here. But the concluding line of this chapter tells us who his audience really was. He says, Remember in my favor, O my God, everything that I have done for these people. See, God was Nehemiah's audience. He knew God's spotlight was on him just as it was on each section of the wall and who was doing the work there. This line tells us a lot about Nehemiah and why he was a man of integrity and unselfishness. It tells us where he was placing his hope. If his hope had been on grabbing a bigger piece of the pie, he would have exercised his right to tax the people. If his hope had been in power to control people, he would have exercised that power to exploit those without power. If his hope had been in prestige, he would not have rebuked the wealthy and the officials who were taking advantage of the powerless. But Nehemiah had put his hope in God. He feared God and God alone. He wanted God's well done, not men's. I've got to be honest, that's a struggle for me. I want people to like me. <laughs> so I need to constantly refocus myself on who I am serving. Especially when, as a leader, I need to do things that are unpopular. Or not easy. He was counting on God to balance the books and reward him someday for what he had given up. And so Nehemiah had his eyes on eternity and it controlled his choices and in particular his financial choices in the present. So a couple of reflection questions for us this morning. Number one, where do you struggle most to live a consistent life with the love and holiness God has called us to? What's, what's the area you struggle most in? What kind of things do people tell themselves to justify questionable choices? I believe all of us are experts on that topic, but sometimes we need to say it out loud. What kind of things do we tell ourselves to justify things? Thirdly, how do you respond to someone reflecting back to you your less admirable actions or qualities? Would people describe you as open to correction or more closed? Fourthly, who is your primary audience? What do your financial choices in life say about whose approval you are seeking? I guess we could say all choices, but in particular here, it's talking about financial choices. And finally, what fruit in your life reflects Jesus on the throne and what fruit reflects you mostly being in control? And how would anyone know that you were a person of integrity? The confrontation in Nehemiah 5 brings to mind Jesus' words to us, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life... <laughs> will lose it. 
But whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a person give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory and with his angels, and he will reward each person according to what he has done. Finally, the Apostle Paul demonstrates a similar fear of God, not men, when he says, it's required of those that have been given a trust, they must prove faithful, and I care very little if I'm judged by you or any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me, and therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in the darkness and will expose the motives of men's heart. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. Living transparently in connection with others who are seeking God and fostering a holy fear or reverence for God is a path that leads to life and to integrity. Let's pray, and then Ron Taves is going to come and lead us in communion. Lord, Lord, how easily we deceive ourselves, how easily greed creeps in, how easily we justify our behavior by comparing ourselves to others rather than to your word. Lord, how often we are hard-hearted and don't want to hear our brothers or sisters challenging us to reconsider choices in our lives. Lord, we can't make it on our own. We need you, but we need each other. For we distort the image so, so readily, Lord. And so, Lord, through your word, through your people, through acts of giving, we ask that you would save us so that we might reflect the reality of Jesus and his redemption of us in the world. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.